welcome back to episode eight of the podcast i like this thing i am Kristen, and i am matthew and this week i will be washikozo paper and belgian linen talking about my one of my favorite youtube channels uh julian baumgartner restoration and i will be the sweaty unibrow of shostakovich <laughs> studying the eighth string quartet of shostakovich <laughs> Exquisite, <laughs> wonderful. Do you have a I Do you have a joke for us, my fellow podcasters? Um, I do. A very brief one. Um, why did the chicken cross the road? Because he had nobody to go with. <laughs> uh, I have, I have a, I have a riddle for you. Uh huh. I love. Also, I love that you knew that I just didn't have an answer. Yeah, I was exactly. Just fish which is why I went for the, the, the classic <laughs> skeleton great. joke. Um, we work so well. We should start I'm, a podcast. I'm glad, I'm glad that we've done the thing that jokes do, where you dissect it so it's now dead. <laughs> the, whole, the, mm. whole, the whole the whole notion of the comedy behind that was entirely removed when we addressed how funny <laughs> that was. Um, yep. I have a question for you. Uh-huh. I'm which actually carries it. on from last week. You know this question already. Oh, dear. Okay, yes. Okay, I'm giving us... I'm giving us... Okay, I'm going to put this timer on my phone right now. I'm going to give us a three-minute timer to discuss this. No, no. Three minutes overall. Okay, I'll give us five. I'll give us five minutes. I'll give us five minutes. Is cereal a soup? And go. Depends how you're using the term soup. If you mean soup to be an umbrella term for liquidy thing that you eat to gain nutrients, then technically sort of yes. But if you mean soup in a more narrow sense of like things that have traditionally been understood as soup and there are other categories of liquidy nutrient gloop, no. Soup, as defined by the Oxford English Dictionary, is a liquid dish typically savoury and made by boiling meat, fish or vegetables, etc. in stock or water. Well, there you go. However, it can but also be described as a substance or mixture regarded as resembling soup in appearance or consistency. You cannot describe something as saying like... it is soupy. No, you absolutely can. That's like a. That's no, no, like no a I'm saying you can't really... describe soup as being soupy. No, but that's what I'm saying. That the word soup is either specifically a type of dish, or it's being used to evoke a sense of soupiness. Like when you have really, really humid weather, that's like a soupy atmosphere. Or like you know, people like kids pouring water into a muddy hole and mixing it up and being like i'm making soup like you know there's a sense of soupiness which is more idiomatic than I literal think, but you're, you're mixing up the, the concept of because like that's that's also the kind of idea of a potion mixing right when you're a child like you're mixing yeah that's what i'm something. saying yeah okay that's fair i see yeah that. The, like it's not just about whether or not it's you you followed a recipe that says soup at the top it's also about like is it something which which fits into the traditional kind of oh this is this is what a soup is um but i think cereal is it's that thing of like <laughs> it's the same argument as as like you know is ravioli or like is <laughs> is a hot pocket a type of ravioli yeah um is someone in a sleeping bag a ravioli? Like, no! If you want to turn ravioli into a way of describing a sort of glyphic arrangement of concepts, then sure, but that's not what ravioli is. Cereal is not soup in the sense of, like, obviously they're two distinct things, there are boundaries here, one is called cereal, one is called soup. But if you want to expand the word Eight, soup so that seven. it... <laughs> so that it's four, that it covers three, more than just two, a list of foods one. there then we it go is. ding 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 time is up you could did stop. i do well did uh, i pass well i was i was mostly just leaning back in my chair and grinning um 
<laughs> I, would so like, I would like to start that saying you're not insufferable, you are perfectly sufferable. Uh, second <laughs> off, I would like to, I'd like to clarify that these questions are deliberately supposed to be this dumb binary which, within which you are forced to make this decision which like, does not make either side of Are you of doing this to me because happy. you think it's good for me? Or... Yes, I think it's both good for you yeah. and also I am engaging in mild schadenfreude. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I'm certainly enjoying your pain. Well, right, let's move to on that, to your... I can I can only say to both you and to our dear listeners, thank you for suffering me. <laughs> I think you're perfectly sufferable. <laughs> the nicest thing anyone said to me all day. And um, I like that thing. That... Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Um, on that note, my segment. It's a one of those rare YouTube channels that is is all the things. It is both entertaining, it is educational, it is quick, it's easy, and it's free. Do you know that meme of the like? Yes, it is. Why would put I pour water, water in your in shoes? Why would I, why would I pour water into my shoes? It's quick, it's, it's quick, easy, it's easy, and it's free. <laughs> Good. Uh, I'm glad that we started with this. Yeah. I would like to. I would like to. I like to open with something here. Oh, um, we've opened like six times. Okay. Well, I know. Okay, open I would again. Like to close something it. then. Um, there might be a notion on this podcast that we always know the thing that both of us are going to talk about. Mm, not true. Uh, which is very not true. I had no idea who Julian Baumgartner. Baumgartner. Yeah. Baumgartner is. Uh, before you started talking, I assumed they were some kind of. Uh, whatever the conjugation of literist is lit, lit, writer <laughs> a novelist oh, there we boy. go li, li, <laughs> a literati is a, is an actual term but that's another thing yeah, okay didn't he kill sherlock or something uh, <laughs> that was funny thank you <laughs> yeah it's true and i had never even watched a j schlapp video so what even is lasagna? I mean, like, what? Would you would you rather have unlimited bacon? No, we're doing no, that thing again, Christian. We, we can't sit in our own self-referential hell. So, <laughs> well, we are suffering each other. So, Julian Baumgartner is a fine art restorationist who is based in Chicago, I think, um, and does fine art restoration which is what it sounds like like clients come to him with paintings um usually quite old and expensive and important paintings from what i can tell or just things from their personal private collection um to be repaired restored cleaned um and he runs a gorgeous youtube channel uh sort of chronicling those projects and they are wonderful videos the videos tend to all be like upwards of half an hour sometimes over an hour and he does some asmr versions which is kind of like just atmospheric like nice noises to listen to so no talking um or he does narrated videos where he walks you through what he's doing to the paintings they are beautifully shot beautifully put together videos um and i have learned so many wonderful useless things that i am never going to need to know but i'm absolutely delighted to know like you know the fact that he i think, I think youtube is absolutely wonderful for that right oh it's so it, good exactly what you want my favorite things like you know the fact that he uses a certain type of belgian linen to sort of repair the edges of paintings and stretch them onto like new frames um and like this I think it's like this really nice Japanese paper called Washikozo. And, um, and you know, like he talks you through everything from kind of getting the painting and assessing it and like, oh, I'm familiar with this sort of brushwork or I'm not familiar with this artist, but I know that it's from this era, which means like I can expect when I do my tests on the painting that it will be this kind of paint and like this sort of chemical mixture. And it's he's really a remarkable like jack of all trades because he he does like the kind of the chemistry of working out what glues and solvents and like like what kind of cleaning fluids will react with the paint well like what 
paints are most stable and how to like treat them how to clean it depending on like what paint has been used or if there's a glaze like how to break that glaze down if it needs to be taken off but he's also like it's very kind of hand hands-on like arts and craftsy i don't know what the word is like like carpentry almost kind of building new frames for these things and and like the kind of canvas stretchers that he like custom makes for these like super old and beautiful paintings and like i've learned so many incredible things about the world of fine art just through julian's luscious calm narration <laughs> it's so delightful to listen to um i introduced him to my to my house and we've had a couple really nice evenings when everyone's kind of just exhausted or doesn't really want to like try very hard or can't quite commit to a whole film where i'll just stick on like a 40 minute youtube video of julian not even like doing a full restoration just cleaning a picture frame and it's just the most soothing thing it's so sublime but it's also like genuinely really engaging because he he lets you into his kind of world and his process and like you know through these shots and like these um edits of of him like clearing or like restretching a canvas or like oh the kind of time lapse pieces where he cleans a painting are like the most satisfying thing in the world you know those photos of like super old paintings that are almost like dark brown and sometimes you just kind of assume that that's what the paintings look like and oh everyone painted in loads of thick dark colors back then it's just because they need a good scrub mate um and julian gives them the best of best scrubs by which i mean like painstakingly like making his own tiny delicate cotton swabs like doing chemical tests to find an exact like chemical solvent that isn't gonna affect the paint but will take off all the glaze or sometimes even like literally like millimeters at a time having to chip away at an old glaze with a scalpel because there's no other way to get it off <laughs> and each like you know just hours like weeks of work condensed into like a, i don't know five minute time lapse where you get to see this painting just come to life and the and the the kind of the colors unveiled and and restored literally just restored to their kind of former glory and he's clearly someone who takes great pride in what he does like he not only is really good at all these enormously different aspects like you know everything from as i'm saying like the kind of scientific angle through to like the artistic one like his the kind of the touching up that he does sometimes he repaints whole sections not you know it's usually not that much work but like retouching an old painting might require a very attentive kind of fine tuning hundreds of different shades of like someone's skin tone to match the exact spot that you're retouching or whatever and there are like you know really cool sort of techniques and conventions in the art world that um that he kind of talks about like i can't remember what it's called but there's this really cool um technique where like if something has been super damaged so a lot of the paint has been lost it's kind of conventional um after some traditions instead of totally repainting the whole thing and trying your best to like pretend that it's oh looks like the original that'll do um you kind of paint in this specific way that's like these kind of thin like lines um which from a distance if you're viewing the painting like in a gallery and it's like i don't know 10 feet away from you kind of looks that gives the illusion of a complete painting once you get up close you can see that it's kind of this fragmented like line streaky effect which effectively is a way of signaling we're just trying to give you a sort of <laughs> no pun intended like artist's impression of what this originally would have looked like but without um without claiming it to be there yeah own. without assume like trying to pass it off as the original work so it's kind of like a you can clearly see where this has been touched up but like you know and julian talks about the kind of uh the integrity of the artist's original vision and sort of trying best to honor what the original effect of the painting must have been so like and you know he's oh he's just so articulate and inviting and like it's a super calm and lovely place to be that I, I also just find really fascinating. Like I get like quite a quite an up close and intimate look into his kind of whole work process and this this like 
oh, I love, I love kind of artisanal YouTube where people with really niche, niche and really honed skill sets, like, just open their world and you get to see things that you just would never otherwise encounter. It's amazing. It's like, it's the same feeling as like going on a school trip to somewhere totally like that you just never would go under your own steam but like you're there and you learn about it and it's super cool and you remember it forever and you you know have most of a disposable camera of rubbish pictures of your shoes but like instead <laughs> you you just have hours and hours in your youtube history of you know this very lovely chicagoan man talking softly about fine art and lovely soothing clips of him like removing old staples from the backs of canvases and he's just uh, all oh i'll i'm not going to say much more about this uh but he, <laughs> one of the other delightful things about this channel is that um the youtube comment section is just hilarious like you can you can tell the kind of caliber of a channel by its community i think a lot of the time and this is one of the loveliest and funniest community of people because it's a lot of like different people who've ended up in this channel for whatever kind of reason and i'm a firm believer in like engage with with the channel read the comments like if you're reading a youtube comment section i don't know it feels like you're watching it with other people and you can kind of contribute and that kind of engagement is important for the channel as well um on an analytical level but like you know this is a a group of devoted watchers who are all there because on one hand it's super soothing and it's nice background content. On the other hand, Julian makes it deeply interesting. And <laughs> and like, you know, because he's so clear about kind of labelling the the tools and the um materials that he's using, by the time you've watched like a couple of his videos, you start to like get used to the kind of process of like cleaning, re reframing, restretching a, a canvas, um, and then sort of like touching up and reglazing and all of that um and so like you know you'll get these comments that are hilarious where um julian will be talking about a painting and he'll be like now the previous uh conservator clearly thought that the best way to do this was with staples but as we know staples are not my preferred method of fixing a canvas to rubber and everyone in the comments is going yeah drag them julian you tell them <laughs> <laughs> and people being like ha staples what an amateur <laughs> <laughs> just like just people being like yeah yeah i'm sat here my hands covered in dorito dust um not having moved for the past five hours nodding sagely to julian's words mm, staples inferior <laughs> and it's just it's just a lovely camaraderie of people who are kind of like delightedly and cheerfully acknowledging the fact that none of us are ever going to use any of this knowledge but it's really nice to know <laughs> it's just a really lovely yeah, so club gonna, to be part of hop in hello hi um, i am still a part of this podcast just to clarify <laughs> uh, um, there was a moment there where i wondered if your internet was gone and i was just talking enthusiastically to I, myself <laughs> i mean I, I wondered it too but i zoned back in and realized you were you were still here <laughs> no i'm joking um that was actually really really interesting i mean one of the things i noticed about this podcast is that genuinely like I could just sit back and listen to you talk uh, because it's really, I mean, that's what the, the point of this, right? We get to talk excitedly about it. And yeah. was, I of, often when we're doing these podcast recordings, I like to, I like to try and think of times to butt in to be like, Oh, I can provide a question here. But genuinely there, it just seemed like there was no, there was no moment. That you were just on a roll. Yeah. Um, I do have a, I do have a few questions. Um, the main one being like, it's hold on. It's, it's a bit of a long question here, but Fine. um, you and I both are on YouTube a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And and we both exist within many different communities. Yeah. Um, like there's there's a whole bunch of range of, of YouTube that we watch, and uh, like I I know that's probably more than the the, the average consumer of YouTube. But mm. would you say that like how would you how would you say that you found this channel? Because like normally when I strike across like a single aspect of YouTube, so like when I first got into gaming YouTube, which is one of the first areas I got into. Um, it, it took a while before my entire recommended feed was just all all game videos and like it started to like seep through when different channels started to arrive so like commentary channels I started to watch them and it became a mix of them um, was he like the first one you found or was it like a like a, a lead into it 
There's big, there's big nuanced words. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you just, you just, you bang in all of the keywords and don't worry about grammar because you want the metadata to take care of the sorting, you know. Um, and I think he, like, one of his kind of longer ASMR, so like not narrated, just the kind of the sounds of him in his studio, uh, like painting cleaning videos came up, and I remember clicking on it and being like, "This is cool. This is cool." Um. And then you click on another one and then you find one that's narrated and you kind of think, do I want to hear someone talking or do I just want to watch a painting being cleaned? And then he starts talking and you're like, wow, you have the world's most soothing voice and you're actually saying interesting things. What a rare diamond in the rough. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's so, one of those YouTube channels which you feel like doesn't have enough subscribers I no just, matter what oh, it does, right? I just adore this channel. And he does, like, I've got it up in front of me. He does have 1.5 million subscribers. Like, it's not like, okay, fair. it's not like it's a tiny channel. Um, but I, I also, um, yeah, what you're saying about kind of how the YouTube algorithm works, um, I am very much a, a big fan of kind of artistry youtube like there are a bunch of channels of of kind of creative crafty people who i just adore like some um some crochet channels um nerd forge is a current favorite of mine as well she's a fabulous uh swedish lass who makes the most insanely cool projects like she'll make these beautiful like books totally from hand that look like kind of ancient fairy tale spell books and stuff yeah oh she's amazing she did one where she um she painted an entire like she followed a bob ross tutorial but on the side of like her van and it it just looks so cool again a very much a jack of all trades um but these people seem to be jack of all trades and also master of all trades and it's very unfair but yeah um so you know i watch a lot of kind of that side of youtube and it's it's a delightful thing that i think in the last five years or so that sort of community of youtube has really thrived like it's been a it's been a long time since youtube was just about kind of nerdy internet stuff and i think one of my favorite things that has really flourished um in the internet community in the last however long is this like what i was saying this sense of like actually this is an amazing tool by which people can have really delightful insights into and in some sense like a participation in a world that would not be open to them otherwise like i watched yeah i was about to address that because there's a notion on the internet that like when you watch these kind of videos you sometimes are doing it to to be able to like imagine that you are the person there or like even like vicariously yeah exactly live vicariously through it like where someone wants to be able to be like you know when someone finds a new topic and they're really excited about it and they want to be able to experience it but they can't because they're like limited by the accessibility and something yeah um they go find a video which hopefully sums it up or actually provides like the exact thing they were looking for and that gives them that sense of like the release that they wanted in order to actually Mm. exist through it um, I think those those kind of videos are really important, and I definitely do the same. Maybe not in exactly the same mediums, but it definitely through the same kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like I watched a a delightful video the other day, which I, I can't remember the name of anymore. Um, but oh, R slash Artisan Videos is also really good. I don't think that's where I discovered Baumgartner Restorations, but um, I've discovered quite a few things through that subreddit. Uh, which is devoted to videos in this genre of like really specific artisan crafts and craftsmen and women and others um and like great you know you get these these beautiful kind of people just sharing like oh look here's a man who specializes in making 18th century lutes and then you'll watch that for an hour and be like sick and then you'll i don't know (laughs) watch a video of a monkey <laughs> and like it's just, just the internet it's you know personal, personal favorite of mine um, yeah. yeah but julia yeah julian baumgartner is one of those the most rare and very precious and special beings i love him so much uh um, where i was gonna you... ask i haven't finished <laughs> oh, sorry no i'm just getting excited but yeah he's one of those rare creatures where once you discover him you're actually like Oh, that like this. This channel has everything. This isn't just a kind of you dip in to watch something cool every now and then. It's like he's got real charisma and integrity, and you just kind of get the impression that he's a total pro and he's just really engaging. I just yeah, just I really like this thing. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, 
I, I was I was going to ask one last question, uh-huh. which is a tiny one, which I think is important for us to do when we talk about these kind of like content creators on, on like YouTube. This is probably an unfair question because I haven't given you any preparation for it. Well, yes, but I mean, more specifically, actually, in the podcast content rather than the, the funny like in, interludes. Um, um, with these kind of content creators, I think it's nice for our audience members who actually want to go follow through with it to have like a single video to to properly follow through with. So, would there be one video you would say would be the architect? Yeah, that's what I thought you'd say, but. Um, oh, I really like his. Um, oh, there's one where he puts back together a triptych of. I think it's. Oh, okay. Do you say triptych? I say triptych. It's definitely triptych, my dear, dear friend. Um, oh, well, this is this is a good point uh, to flag, actually. This whole podcast is set up to be extremely like referential. This is literally us talking about things that we like, but we also, you know, we quote a lot of things, whether it's Jay Schlatt making ridiculous would you rather's about bacon and games, or if it's like, you know, oh, this this YouTube video, that YouTube video. Uh, my dear lovely brother Matthew has done the good work of putting a bunch of those things into a playlist. So if you find us on YouTube, um, the channel also, I believe, has a playlist full of videos that we've referenced. So, um, this video that I want to highlight from the Baumgartner channel is called The Restoration of Ave Maria Narrated Version. And it's only 11 and a half minutes, actually. I've forgotten some of them are actually short. Um, and it is, it's, it's lovely and it has it all. It has all of the kind of things I've mentioned of him talking about the process. You get to see something go from old and and rather sort of rotted looking this beautiful wooden icon um to delightful and colorful and lovely so would recommend go check it out it's only 10 and a bit minutes all right that's perfect um we're you know definitely within the 15 minute boundary um (laughs) i can't tell if you're joking I'm very much joking, Oh, yes, we've been recording for uh, half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's my segment. I like this thing. Definitely, if you... Like, honestly, go check it out. I think a lot of... Certainly a lot of my friends I know would actually really enjoy this channel. <laughs> um, and I think that is a testament to the fact that I have surrounded myself with very good people. Yeah, people who have a, a like-minded... People um... who have... Mwah! taste taste my dear <laughs> or you could that call curator it curator of greatness i think you could also call it surrounding yourself with an echo chamber but that's okay um on to my topic which is definitely not mine is about the eighth string quartet of shostakovich You always love it when I do that. Um, Which more specifically, I guess, goes into the notion of uh, personal melodic. Frozen 2 theory from last week. That too, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to break it down quite far. So I'm going to, I'm going to go back quite. Yeah. All the way back to the early 20th century, I believe. Uh, Much later, much earlier, I guess, if if you were to provide it with that kind of historical context. Um, When was Shostakovich around? Is he not 20th century? Shostakovich was, correct me if I'm wrong, which I don't know, born 1906 and died 1975. Oh, you're going for an exact date. I'm going to Google that. Keep talking. I'll tell you whether you're right. 1906 and 1975 is what I want to say. Um, His eighth string quartet was released in 1960. it is a phenomenal yeah oh well i mean i mean i am studying (laughs) 2002 
Yeah, but I mean, I, one of the I think that's the important things to to mention to my, to my my dear listeners, love you to death, is that I, um, yeah, is that I love Shostakovich. He's probably one of my favorite composers. Um, I am a huge like fan of the big romantic symphonies, um, and Shostakovich does those spectacularly. Um, his fifth symphony. And his seventh are my two of my favorite symphonies ever written. So if you want to go listen to those, those are absolute bangers. Um, but specifically, I'm talking about this one, um, his eighth string quartet uh, in C minor. Um, this was written in 1960, and it was written very shortly after Shostakovich, a Russian composer, um, was forced to join the Communist Party. Um, this one is a very downer topic, so just get yourself into that kind of mindset um it's been referred to in many ways as one of his most bleak works um uh some of his closest friends have even referred to it as like that of an epitaph for himself um where he had planned to commit suicide later so he wrote his last work um fun yeah he was also just to just to note that this was written in three days at all that does the entire length also of how fun. long it took him to write it <laughs> oh wow um, yeah uh it's it's sort of as a this big moment in in his own life it's not this big moment historically but in his own life it's talking about this turn where he's been forced to reluctantly join you know the ussr mm. um because he's been fighting for so long as one of the one of the many members of you know the sort of artist foundation within USSR, the people who had been rebelling against being part of it. Mm. Um, and that had been going on forever. He had this whole controversy with his opera, The Lady Macbeth, Macbeth of Matinsk, uh, which was seen as too like sexual and mm. and um like too too erotic for the the fact that the party was supposed to be this exact totalitarian state, mm. which didn't ever give off this notion of, you know, being anything less than perfect. Um uh, and then he was almost, you know, essentially removed from the country and he had to write his comeback, which is the Fifth Symphony, which was amazing. Anyway, I'm getting very sidetracked. Um, <laughs> this work, specifically, one of the reasons I love it, um, other than the fact that it is gorgeous, and I would recommend anyone uh, who's listening to go listen to it, um, uses his motif, which is the DSCH motif, um, which is often referred to as Shostakovich's musical signature. Um, it is a personal signature because his name is Dmitry Shostakovich and DSCH sort of outlines that name. Um, and this is quite an important point. Yeah, I love you to love you to death. Um, it is a musical cryptogram. Um, that's what they that's what they referred to as. And one of the first ever instances, although it's not the first, but one of the most famous instances, I guess, is the Bach motif. Yes, it's when in all of Bach's writing, you suddenly get a woof. <laughs> Thank you, that was really funny. You should, you should do a podcast or something. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it uses B-A-C-H as his name. And, and Bach, f- for those who are less musically, historically literate, uh, is one of the, the forefathers of Western music in terms of how we understand you know, major and minor keys and diatonicism as a whole. And I'm not even going to get into this because I could feel you grinning from across from across many miles um okay. <laughs> um one of the important things to note for those of you who are more familiar with a keyboard is that normally there isn't a h on a keyboard or uh, an s for that matter um um, um no, for DSCH, which is the one I'm actually referring to. Um, but it's fine. I, I, know, mm, I doubt. Uh, um, this has got, gotten around in many different ways. Um, there's such a thing, and I'm stepping back again, so I'm, I'm doing a lot of, like, I'm having to explain a lot backwards, but that's fine. Um, there's something called solmization systems, um, which is what you were asking about earlier, Kristen. Um uh, which is the notion of uh, like how how a system which associates each note of a scale with like a particular syllable, um, right? It's normally used to to help teach, like uh, like it's like a kind of folk method of like orally passing down tradition. That's cool. Um, this is called solfege, 
um, uh, or fixed dough or movable dough sulfage. And that's kind of, do you know, I'm sure you do, The Sound of Music, the Do Re Mi song. That wasn't a joke. That was that was the that was a that was a haha, I don't know it. Haha, that's very funny. <laughs> from somewhere that isn't the thing it's from. Isn't the thing that I'm getting it from. <sighs> that's that's that is a direct reference to fixed do sulfage, which is a... the notion of having mm, Yeah, okay. Pardon? I was gonna say it's not a reference, it just uses the do re mi scale. But that's what that is, Chrissy. Yeah, no, I know. That's what I'm saying. But it's not referencing it. It's just using it. Okay, so it literally I was directly is using it. taking issue wrong. with yeah, the way you were using the word reference, not the facts of the okay, statement. Okay, that's... Yeah, well, I wasn't... Yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was um, being anal about it. No, it's fine. Um, that exact reference of, of like, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do is used forever in music as a way to both learn and also provide understanding around scales but also specifically for composers like Bach, like Shostakovich composers like that, um, they used it as ways to provide lettering so they could do like musical spellings. That's cool um, This isn't actually that important specifically for this example but I wanted to talk about that because it was actually used a lot in other examples of these musical cryptograms um, specifically for the H in DSCH uh, H on the German keyboard, so on the German um, understanding of musical lettering, is actually, prior to like the 1800s, used as the B natural on a keyboard. Okay. Um, so like that was just, rather than have, <laughs> it just rewrote the entire system, because rather than have um, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, B flat, um, Sorry, no, not B. B, C. It would be, they put B on the B flat and they put H on the B natural. Why? I'm being very technical here. Okay. Um, but that's, but that's, that's, there's not really much of a particular reason. It's just convention. Um, yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Um, the other one being E flat, uh, which is the S in this context. Um, cool. I know I'm being very specific here, but this is exactly why I wanted to talk about it because it's really fascinating to me. Okay, um, no, go for it. Um, in the alphabetical system, so did you ever take music theory exams, Kristen? I know you yeah, did. Yeah, I took grade five, um, like every peasant uh, from here to Berlin. Uh, exactly. Um, different ways in which they referred to um, like instruments in different languages in shorthand, so like transposition instruments. Um, like that of the horn or of like a, you know, a very specific type of flute um, <laughs> would, would be, would be given like specific different languages in order to, to, you know, confuse the examined, examined audience and, and to, to lose the marks. Um, and one of the ways in which um, that transposition happens is that they say uh, like this instrument in E flat. Um, and if they were referring to it in German, they would say ES um, because that's just how the German shorthand for, for the E flat is, um, and that as a shorthand in terms of how you phonetically sound it is just an S in terms of writing it down. Um, which all that to say slightly, but go off, King. Yeah, I'm I'm trying not to be too. No, it's I'm, no, great. I'm getting. I'm, and I'm far too there. Um, <laughs> far too there. Far too deep into this already. Um, all this to say is that the D S C H motif <laughs> is. Comprised of the notes D, E flat, C, B natural. Cool. Yeah. Uh, that's all I wanted to say, but that, I was explaining the explaining <laughs> the context behind is that. Is what you like. <laughs> um. And no, hold on. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. No. Back to and the string quartet. Uh, yeah, the string quartet within Shostakovich. So it's not the only time he's ever used it. It's actually quite commonly that he uses it. Um. You you mean uses his his name motif thing. Yeah, his, okay. name, his musical cryptogram, so his specific musical motif, which refers to himself. Nice. Um, so, it's so, used... Hang on. What I'm getting, basically, is that Jason Derulo ain't done nothing mm. new. 
Yeah, exactly. Great. That, that opening, <laughs> Jason Derulo, is, is very much similar to what Shostakovich did when he was writing. Is like Shostakovich's cryptogram. It's really similar. Mm-hmm. Re- yeah. <laughs> but bang on, actually. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, this is used sparingly in his other movements. So from the top of my head, um, his Eighth Symphony has it. Uh I think his cello concerto has it. No, there's number one. Sorry, there's two. The one in the one in E flat major. Um, I was gonna say everybody but knows that specifically. <laughs> okay, yes, I know I'm being too far too in detail. No, I love it. Um, it's great. Well, I am also specifically gonna make they're used very sparingly, right? Uh huh. Um, so like they're used very much as a sort of oh here's my you know when someone like signs a tag in something and they leave it once. Um, yeah. This one, this string quartet specifically uses it constantly and like it is throughout the entire work it's just all over it um mm. the first movement is literally just that theme but played in like a fugal sense where it like plays on top of each other and then it and then it, like it like plays in a different instrument um and then it, the other instrument like plays above it in a sort of um antiphonic sense where it has a call and response um and it like the entire work, the first one's really slow. The first movement, the second movement is this much faster, like very like rhythmically, <laughs> rhythmically arrhythmic. That's not, I can't say that. Um, but it's, it's deliberately like, it's supposed to have, you use these irregular rhythms and pitches in order to completely throw off the listener because the first one's been very tonal, very inside of the understanding of a very normal string quartet. Right. Um, but throughout all five, Practically nothing links them other than the fact that it's all the same string quartet and the fact that this motif is used. Everything else within the within the string quartet is like deliberately, deliberately opposing each other. So they're really not trying to be the same other than the fact that the linking factor is this motif. Right. Um, which kind of feels like this whole notion of people talking about him from, from ages ago when I was referring to it as like this this work that he wrote after this awful news that he like felt so like completely like devastated by, by the fact that he had to be part of this communist party. And it was this response to totalitarianism. Um, like this work shows that inner turmoil by being so deliberately contrasting um, while simultaneously being written all over by, with his like personal motif. Um and that dynamic of it being so deliberately intimate and personal while simultaneously being so alienated and removed from the norms of music is something which really, really fascinates me. Um, like that notion of, it's just so well constructed. Yeah. Like that being able to portray to that extent the the inner turmoil of him, of his, of his emotions just on paper so clearly is ridiculous. Um, and the fact that to tie this all back together was that was written only in three days is something else which is ridiculous mm. to me as well. Like the speed that he wrote that level of work is just something which blows my mind. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a really good example of this uh, in a much grander scale. It's his seventh symphony, which is often referred to as a Leningrad symphony. His his um, seventh symphony. Which, <laughs> yeah. Okay. His, sorry, his seventh symphony. Oh, um, I just didn't hear. You. Which was directly in response to that of um, the whole invasion of Leningrad during World War Two, mm. um, and it has this motif in the first movement, which builds up for twenty minutes, and it's literally the same sixteen bars for twenty minutes. Oh man, um, Packabell's Cannon style, and it uh, is exactly very minimalistic, like li- li- deliberately minimalistic, but in a sense where the beginning is this tired, sorry, t- tiny, quiet. Try to mix those words together. <laughs> tiny and quiet. Um, motif in the piccolo and the like high strings which are the two like very top of the range instruments and by the end you've got this massive grand scale orchestra playing it and it's been building up for ages um and there's this massive tension throughout it as it tries to suddenly deliver into this new key right at the end um and it's this it's it's this ability to tell a story um within the music while simultaneously staying true to the music itself if it makes any sense yeah like the the music itself doesn't ever like like take any shortcuts or like cut anything in order to be able to be more deliberately story based or specifically trying to portray that of a of a of like an understanding you know when 
you know when you see a piece of art and it's like deliberately you can tell that someone's trying to tell you a story through it so they've like removed some of their own sense from it does that make any sense <laughs> you know when you know when someone tries to tries to deliberately be less personal like there's there's much more of an impersonal feel to a piece of art because they're trying to portray to you a story one of the examples of this which is best to to understand that is the 1812 overture by tchaikovsky right um so tchaikovsky is trying to tell the exact story of the entire fight of the 1812 with france and russia right um, I'm I'm getting way. You cannot separate those things. Yeah. Yeah. Ways it's all personal and it's also entirely not true. So, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I, I yeah, hear yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll drop that Tchaikovsky uh, for another time. I'll probably talk about Tchaikovsky <laughs> at some point later in this podcast. But, um, like that, that larger scale to be that personal and that simultaneously like powerful in terms of a narrative sense is just something which I, very few other composers have ever struck that chord with. Mm. Um, very few. I mean, like Mahler did, and that's about it, really. <laughs> um and i think i think he's a really important composer in the canon he only died as i said in 1975 yeah. um which is not that long ago in no. the grand scheme of things for classical canons um like he died whilst the beatles would like at the top of well i mean he died a bit later than the beatles were at the top of their fame but like the beatles oh, were man. around during him, is... listening to the beatles makes my brain hurt that's one of those moments where you're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's actually like the famous story. So Shostakovich, his Jazz Watch number two is one of his most famous works ever. And you would know it if I played it to you. I couldn't, I couldn't get you to sing it back to me right now. They're probably. Yo, I love that tune from a uh, corpse husband. I love that one. Um, uh, but do you know? Do you know that work? You might not. I mean, it's a, it's it's one of his most famous works. Yeah. Um, and like that's that's called the Jazz Suite or the Jazz Waltz. Um, which is because he was never allowed to go to America. He heard a bit of jazz once and then wrote something which he thought was jazz, despite the fact that it's despite the fact that it's very much an orchestral work. The only reason that it's is portrayed as jazz in his mind is because it involves a saxophone, which I really, I really love that story. Really cute. <laughs> it's, it's very sweet in terms of being like, oh, this is jazz, right, guys? And and yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I, I don't know, this is both a little love letter to, to Shostakovich as a whole as a composer, but also very specifically his ability to, to emotionally portray what is happening because um, some composers are not to get more into detail because I know I'm far running over time. Right. Some composers, um, there's a there's a there's a dynamic contrast between composers who are absolute music composers and program music composers. And to break that down, absolute music is the concept of or the notion of music being written solely for music's sake. So there's no there's no intent or you know thought behind it. It's just to write music. Mm. Um, and programmatic music is the notion. So stuff like Symphony Fantastique or or bigger works, which are deliberately, you know, literally they have a program written for them. Um, so there is this whole story behind it and they're trying to make you think of something or express something through the program. And Shostakovich is a very middle line character between those two. Um, he writes about the things that are happening to him, but he never expressly writes them for that thing um are putting it uh yeah and i think he's really really i think he's really good at that and um, like like in an unheard kind of way um i don't know i don't really know how to end this one because i think i could just talk about shostakovich forever but <laughs> like he's really really talented and i think that more people should give him a chance because a lot of people write him off being similar to that of like the eternal style of the 20th century where people just started to completely remove from the sense of 
you know what the framework was supposed to be but he very much um he was like a uh, a poly stylist is that is that can i can i use that yeah he is <laughs> uh in the notion that he has this this mix of different different musical techniques um mm. in his works um and his ability to both portray the the new and the old simultaneously is something really really fascinating to me that is lovely and i i think you should end uh in answering the same question you asked me which is you know if someone didn't know any shostakovich um was like okay yeah i'll give it a listen where where should they start um this string quartet i've been talking about is definitely a good one mm, um okay that one's kind of already a, a pre-written but if i were to say the the most like I don't know, quintessential Shostakovich piece, I would probably say, if you have the time, which is, you know, you don't, not everyone does, um, <laughs> but if you do have the time, the Fifth Symphony. Okay. Um, the Fifth Symphony is really, really, really important. Um, and it's quite long and it's quite hard. He's he's one of those late romantic composers, very much a 20th century art composer, really. I can't really call him a late romantic. That's that's pushing. Um, um <laughs> sorry um <laughs> no i'm it's uh, great uh where you cannot be listening to him whilst doing something else right it can't be a background it can't be a background piece of music you can put on mozart you can put on early beethoven as a sense of like oh well i'll you know do, do some house chores yeah. or do some kind of work whilst doing this but shostakovich really if you want to properly understand what you're listening to requires effort and time and like proper engagement mm. with the music you're listening to emotional attention yeah yeah um and if you have the time for that, and I'm not saying everyone does, um, try out his Fifth Symphony. Nice. Um, yeah. And I think the more approachable works of his would be the Cello Concerto Number no. 1, his Jazz Waltz, as I was mentioning earlier. Um, he has this absolutely beautiful suite in The Gadfly, which is one of his operas, um, called The Romance Suite, mm. which is actually the first work of his I ever played. Oh. Um, and it is this absolutely gorgeous, soaring melodical work which just portrays the the notion of love to to a t it's so well done that sounds Um, lush i'll get you to listen to it after this recording (laughs) um um but yeah uh yeah definitely for those listeners who are more interested uh try try him out give give him a give him a whirl um love it he he is absolutely one of my favorite composers and i like this thing We will be dropping links to these things in the playlist that I mentioned earlier um, for those of you who, you know, want to give yourselves homework because you're missing that key stage three feeling. Um. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm deliberately citing it as a bibliography just so I can get the feeling of writing an essay again. That's just <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm capturing. Um, to close, <laughs> I would like to bring us full circle and ask you a question. Do you think that cereal is soup? it's a very nuanced question i'm glad that we brought this one back together um well i realized i never got your answer and frankly that's outrageous i i whenever i ask these questions and i ask them a lot just to just to clarify um i like to open these with these questions to people just to really (laughs) nice really lay it down um i always take the side which makes it more controversial to people um, lovely i'm You're very much a, very much a neutral engager with these things i like to try and make people more frustrated with these kind of questions um if i were to actually engage with it mm-hmm. i would say i would say no Boo. Um, because i do not think that cereal is a soup i think that um Good. a soups are defined by temperature uh b mm. the notion of the idea of a soup it normally comes with the idea of this broth which is with like a meat or a vegetable of some kind of substance. And I'm taking a very literal interpretation yeah. of this question. Are you? Um, so I had potato and leek soup for dinner the other day. Um, good. And I poured the entire carton into a bowl. And then me and two of my housemates who were also in the kitchen looked at it and I went, I microwave that. That's going to go everywhere, isn't it? And they were like, yes. And I was like, okay, I'll heat it up in a pan like a normal person. Um, so I poured it into a pan, heated it up. Are you telling me that it only became soup once I had heated it up in the pan? But up until that point, no, it was a I sort am... of globulous mess. I am not saying, I am not saying that it is not soup before then. 
However, I am saying that if you did take cereal in the same way and you put it in heat, <laughs> yeah, but I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a soup. No, I, well, I'm inclined to agree. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that soup. I, that's a different question, but I don't think that soup is is dependent upon heat. I don't think. No, I don't think there's, there's a, there's a notion of like, a, like a, you know, like a baked good where it can only become the thing once it's baked. Um, I don't yeah. think that. The, the soup is defined by its temperature. However, I do think that a cereal is. Interesting. Because I'm I pretty don't think, sure that I'd... cereals used to be eaten warm, like, as a thing. Okay, so, like, like the kind of notion of, like, on. hot, um, what's it called? What's it called? Porridge. <laughs> porridge is, a, yeah. porridge is a, a hot cereal. And I would say that's true, but I also... <laughs> don't like porridge so i don't think it's a real thing i don't think i don't think people who actually enjoy porridge are real i i think there's a whole different conspiracy theory i don't think that porridge enjoyers are a real thing uh um, well i love porridge so oh man well i don't think you're I've, real i think this is just a figment of my imagination i've googled were cereals eaten warm and it's come up with a reddit thread that says do you have your cereal with hot or cold milk on unpopular opinion no stupid questions and and then, you know, all the upsetting BuzzFeed. Everyone is eating cereal wrong and it's incredibly upsetting. Friday debate. Do Only barbarians cereal eat cereal with, with hot milk, milk. Or the cereal first. I don't know where I've got this from. I think I'm thinking of like wartime kind of uh, bran mash where you'd like warm it all up with warm milk. and. That's so bleak. I mean, that's where cereal came from. It was invented because there was like... Yeah, well, it's wrong. <laughs> no, cereal is one of life's greatest joys. No, I love cereal. Me too. Don't get me wrong. I used to eat boxes and boxes of dry cereal. Yeah, I still you did. do. Oh boy, your eating habits, as previously mentioned on the pod. <laughs> I once ate a I once ate a box of cereal at my friend's house. Um, to the extent of eating two boxes full of this one cereal. Um, Incredible. And forevermore, and still to this day, their parents think that they adore that cereal. <laughs> so they keep buying it for them. <laughs> because you ate so much of it. Because in, like, in the space of this such shorter time since they'd, they'd ordered it, that That's suddenly so funny. it was all gone. <laughs> oh my days. I just don't think they quite had the, you know, the, the, the freedom to be like, I know that you think I love this, but... Uh... <laughs> Actually, I just have some really bonkers friends. <laughs> Um, I don't know how we got here, but yeah. I have a question for you. Do, do you oh think? Boy. Okay. Do you do you pour cereal or the milk first? Um, because this does define our friendship. Okay, I can't believe so I've asked you this before. What I tend to do, okay, brace yourself for this, is okay. I will wait until the milk jug is at least like half done. I will pour the cereal directly into the milk jug, shake it up. And then pour it out into like a baking tray or like a casserole dish. Put it in the oven on low heat for about three mm. hours. Um, and then pour that into, it's kind of like a sloppy mess by this point. Pour that into a frying pan or a wok or something big enough. Um, and keep adding eggs until it becomes solid. And then like wait for it to cool are these are these are these eggs out of their shell or just oh no 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 just... shells and all uh, put them in uh wait for it like you know fry all of that up until it's like congealed uh wait for it to cool and then blend it with some cooled mint tea um and chug it that's really cool um i'm <laughs> Uh, completely not linked with that at all. Going to be leaving this podcast after this week. Um, oh. Just to clarify for everyone. <laughs> I didn't know. I, I made him suffer too much. <laughs> um, You're perfectly sufferable. Um, still the nicest thing. That's really weird. I don't like you. Yeah, uh, I don't actually do that. I pour the cereal first like a normal noggin. Because um, I pour the cereal first and I pour the milk. And then on the second bowl, I pour the cereal back into yes. the milk. Yes. Yes, yeah, I think that's the answer. You eat the cereal, and then you're left with a little bit of milk, and then you keep topping it up. Oh, oh. amen, brother. And then you live, We're on such you a live in this weird tension where you pour more cereal in by accident. You have to put more milk in, and then you <laughs> you pour more yeah, cereal mate, in. Yeah, mate, I can get you, through a whole box like... of Rice Krispies in one sitting with that tactic. Yeah, cereal. Me too. Milk, no, we haven't, Mum. I promise. <laughs> I promise we haven't <laughs> <What>? done that. <laughs> Never. I. Okay, vegetables. we are we are tailing. We need to yeah. eat it. 
you to cut this one. Um, let us know how you eat your cereal. Is it warm? Do you eat how it with you... a spoon? Do you eat it with a straw like Matthew used to? Do you to? even use a bowl? Or do you just <laughs> lick it off the floor? Oh, good Lord. Um, or do you, like some psychopaths I know, pour the milk into the cereal bag? What? And on that bombshell... <laughs> what? <laughs> Goodbye and good night. <laughs> <laughs>